You guys love each other more than you used to. <laughs> That's a good thing, man. It is, uh, it's so awesome to, to be back home. And uh, wow, uh, I hung my hat here for almost 25 years. And uh, there's times that it feels like I've been gone forever. There's times when I feel like I've not left, and usually that's when I'm preaching. And, uh, and so, Pastor Jeff, I do appreciate the, the privilege, the opportunity to be able to talk to your folks. And, uh, you know, I was driving here today with uh, one of my homies, uh, the guy I traveled to Malawi with all the time. And uh, I, was just, I was just telling him about y'all. And just telling him about this, this church. Uh, do you guys realize that, uh, let's see, is today the 15th? Uh, on Wednesday, that this church will be 157 years old, man. Hallelujah. That's worth rejoicing about, man. Started in 1858. Every time I talk about that, I, I just trip because it was the Philadelphian church period, man. And this church is here because of a vision another church had of planting a church in New Philadelphia that was preaching the gospel. And you can go to New Hagerstown, about 30 miles up the road, and there ain't Jack there. <laughs> there is a marker that talks about what used to be there but had that group of people not had a vision to plant this place, wow. And, and it just trips my mind out that after 157 years, Jeff, this place is still preaching the truth of the Word of God unashamedly every single week. It's training people to be sent out to go to the ends of the earth. I, I got to tell you, y'all, I'm not the most traveled guy in the world, but I just don't know many places like that. <laughs> it, it, really, it, you, we have in this place such a rich heritage, and listen, by tomorrow night, airbrush that out, man. <laughs> I look like an old geezer, man, what? <laughs> I think <laughs> so I need airbrushing in real life is what I need, man. <laughs> Yeah, you see, I got out of here before I got old. I, I left, and, and I got old. But, uh, but we're here th this week, and man, I, I, I hope you'll do your best to be here every night and every morning. Uh, if you have a job, I would suggest quit it. <laughs> so you can be here, because there's nothing like being there in real life. You know what I'm saying? But we're here this week to talk about a, a biblical view of salvation. Uh, our, our intent, as we talked about this conference, is that we would love for it to be more about what we're for than what we're against. And yet, <laughs> that's a hard balance to find. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you know, since I've left here, I've got three grandkids, and I can tell you, man, I, I, I pray about it every single night. I've got a vision for what I want those kids to be when they become adults. I see it, man. I, I, I pray it. I, I want them to love God, man. I, I, I want them to be grounded in the Word. I, I want them to, to be passionate about bringing 
the Lord Jesus Christ the maximum glory. But you know what? As, as I see that, I, I know good and well that I'm never going to achieve that or see that without also telling them the things that are coming against them ever really loving God. I mean, do I really think that they're going to end up loving God if I don't talk to them about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2? That one of the things that makes the day that they are growing up in so perilous is that we are lovers of our own selves, and we cannot love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength if we're in love with ourselves. So I'm going to have to talk to them about that. I want them to be grounded in this book, man. But do I think for a minute that I'm not going to have to talk to them about Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, that the first recorded words of Satan in the Bible come in the form of a question, and the question has to do with what God said, God's word? Man, I want them to have that passion to bring Christ the maximum glory. I mean, not just hitting at it, but bring the maximum glory. Do you, do you think that I could ever really see them get there without talking to them about that luciferic pride that wants to creep up in all of us that says, I will, and wanting that glory for themselves. And so I say all of that because, yeah, man, I want to be a positive guy. But if we're really going to get to the positive message of what biblical salvation is, there's some things that we're going to have to talk about that are coming against that. And so that's where I, I felt impassioned to begin tonight with what I'm calling why I'm not a Calvinist and why I'll no longer tiptoe through the tulips. For real, it, this has been one of those issues that, ah, you know, whatever, we're all going to end up in the same place. And i, I got to tell you, when you find out what they really believe, there's no more tiptoeing that we can do. We do need to get our heads wrapped around what biblical salvation actually is. And so tonight, I'll give you three reasons and... Uh, We'll take it from there. All right. The first reason that I'm not a Calvinist is because the simple fact of the Bible is that man's connection with God has always been determined by his own choice. And, of course, the choice I'm talking about is man's own choice. And for the life of me, y'all, I don't know how a person could possibly read the first three chapters of the Bible and come away with anything different than that. But as Pastor Jeff shared this, this morning, somehow Calvinists do. They believe the exact opposite of that. They believe that our connection with God is determined upon, solely upon God's choice they do not believe that we have anything whatsoever to do with it at all. And I want you to be able to just know that I'm not just slanting this 
from you know, my own bias, and I, I'll give you, I'm biased as, as they are, but I want you to be able to hear it from their own lips. Calvinist John Dagg writes, All who will finally be saved were chosen. Chosen to salvation by God the Father before the foundation of the world and given to Jesus Christ in the covenant of grace. Herman Hanko says, Election is therefore the decree of God which He eternally makes by which with sovereign freedom He chooses to Himself a people upon whom He determines to set His love, whom He rescues from sin and death through Jesus Christ unto Himself in everlasting glory. Gene Krakenfels says all of that just a a little more succinctly. He, He says, God has unconditionally elected some men to eternal salvation and all others to eternal damnation. His election is unconditional, meaning man has absolutely no say in his salvation. And of course, the Bible says something completely different than that. And so as you can see, there's a very foundational disparity between what we believe and what Calvinists believe about this thing of salvation of all things, and thus this conference. And what I want to do tonight as we get started is I want to take just a few minutes to talk to you about something that is incredibly deep, and yet at the same time is incredibly Simple, And you see, that's always, always, always the way it is when it comes to God and it comes to his book. God's truth is always unbelievably deep. Paul referred to God's gospel or the, the, the truth of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. He referred to this, listen, I love this, as the unsearchable riches, meaning that you can search it in any direction, and it's so low that you can never get to the bottom of it, and it's so high that you can never ascend to the top of it. It's so wide that you can never get to the end of it. It is unsearchable, the unsearchable riches, and yet the paradox is those incredible and unsearchable riches that he's talking about, they're always revealed in childlike simplicity. In fact, Paul talked about his fear in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. And his fear was that the same way that, Eve, that Satan did it with Eve that he would do it with, with us, and that he would move in by corrupting our minds and subtly moving us away from, and this is such a key phrase, the simplicity, 
that is in Christ. You see, God always takes his truth and makes it incredibly simple. Not simplistic, but simple. And the reality is, in that simple truth, it is unsearchable. It is packed with power. It's packed with depth. Sometimes the way we say it is, you know, the Bible isn't a hard book to understand. The Bible is a hard book to believe. But if you leave it alone and just let it be the Bible and say what it says, it's not a hard book to understand because it's simple and its real profundity or the profoundness of it is actually revealed in its simplicity. That's how God works. The devil, on the other hand, works the exact opposite of that. You understand tonight that the devil has made a career out of taking God's truth and corrupting it, perverting it, convoluting it, or confusing it. What God has made unbelievably simple, he always finds a way to make it difficult. And by the time he's finished messing with it, the next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says that by the time it's all said and done, there's another Jesus that's being preached. And there is another spirit that's operating. And there's another gospel that's being proclaimed. And so, folks, I I, want to say from the get-go tonight, there is absolutely nothing about Calvinism, Reformed theology, covenant theology, it's all synonymous terms for the same thing. There's not one thing about that whole system that could ever be classified as the simplicity that is in Christ. It it is a a system, and, and, and you will see this in the morning sessions. I think you'll see this in the evening, that it's a system of circular reasoning and Roman Catholic theology that is at best confusing and convoluted. It is extremely difficult to follow. It requires intense indoctrination to believe it, much less explain it. And, and, and I know it may be way early in the week for me to actually say this, but I, I believe that the Calvinistic system is the, the subtle work of, of the author of confusion. I believe it to be a harlot system spawned by the mother of harlots, the Roman Catholic Church. A system that takes the glorious simplicity of God's plan of salvation and taints it with corruption and and perversion and convolution, it is anything but the simplicity that's in Christ. I, and I, I maintain that, that the, the, the deepest of God's truth can always be explained, can always be conveyed in a way that common people can understand it. Do you remember Mark chapter 12, verse 37? I, I scream this verse all the time. The common people heard him gladly 
And I, I, I don't, you know, I, I, if, you're, if you're really smart, okay, you might be able to learn the Bible too. <laughs> but I'll just tell you this, the common people in Jesus' day heard him gladly. I, I think that God's truth is so simple that even children can understand it. Mark chapter 10 and verse 15 says that this whole kingdom of God thing is all about becoming like a, a little child. And if this thing is so convoluted that children and common people can't get it, I'm a common people, y'all. I don't get it. But I do believe in the glorious depth and simplicity of the gospel. And, and since this is a conference that is talking about having a biblical view of salvation. You know what I wanted to do tonight? I wanted to take just this first point, and I wanted to make sure that I have, in this conference, given the gospel. You may be here tonight, and you may not even understand anything that you've already heard, but I want to take the glorious depth of this thing that God wants to do in the life of every person to save them. I, I want to take it in all of its depth and keep it just as simple as it can possibly be. And I think I can do it. Don't time me. I, I think I can do it. I can name that tune in three minutes. I, I, I really think that I, I could do this in, in, in three minutes. But I, I feel like for us to talk about a biblical view of salvation and never really give the gospel might be an atrocity. Okay, so let me, let me just tell you how simple this is. Before the foundation of the world, God made a choice. He didn't have to do it this way, but the glorious fact is he did. And what he chose was that when he would create man, he would create that man in a relationship with himself. And, and through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man, the first man, was offered the choice to continue that connection with God by not eating of that tree that God told him not to eat from. Or he could choose to eat from that forbidden tree and suffer the consequences of spiritual death resulting in disconnection from the holy God that had created him. But from the very beginning, man's connection with God was man's own choice, and that choice was represented in a tree. And so the way that it shook out is man made the fateful choice to sin against God by partaking of that tree, resulting in the fact that every other man that was born from Adam's corrupted seed would be born into this world spiritually dead and thereby separated from his perfectly holy God. And yet the message of the New Testament is God is still offering man a choice. We now are offered the choice of entering 
a relationship with God by partaking of what Christ provided on, on our behalf through his death on the cross. Because you know what 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says? That Christ bore our sins in his own body on the, the, the cross? What does it say? The, the tree. So we might could say it this way. Man's connection with God has always been determined by man's own choice, and the choice has always had to do with a tree. The first man chose to partake of the fruit of the tree in the garden, choosing to sever his relationship with God. And all of us have the opportunity to choose to partake of the fruit of the tree of Calvary, the forgiveness of sin, choosing to enter a relationship with God. And God in all of his sovereignty, chose to graciously give us that choice and to give us that gift. And so we say to you, listen, if you're here tonight and you have never partaken of the fruit of the tree of Calvary, I say to you tonight, Psalm 34 and verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And that choice is yours tonight. That's clearly what the Bible says. And since Calvinism says that you and I don't have that choice, that's the first reason that I'm telling you tonight that I could never be a Calvinist because man's connection with God has always been determined by man's own choice that God graciously gave to him. Okay, now, I don't know. That probably, that point makes absolutely perfect sense to all of us. But I can just tell you that with a Calvinist, that is way too simple to even be a minute bleep on their radar, a blip on their radar. And if that be the case, it'll be just like that with the second point, because the second one is just that simple. And that is, number two, I'm not a Calvinist because, listen carefully, because my final authority has not been determined by a theological system. My theological system has been determined by my final authority. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And if that sounds to you like I, I, I'm, I'm saying that Calvinists like John Piper, R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, and, okay, yes, even John MacArthur... If it sounds like I'm saying to you that they don't really believe that the Bible is their final authority, then we're tracking. Because that is exactly 
what I'm, I'm saying. And, and again, I realize it's way too early in the week to be saying stuff like that. And, and I, I realize, I really do, that if most Christians in, in America heard me say what I just said, they, they'd write me off as a backwoods preacher that, you know, writes off anybody that doesn't dot their I's and cross their T's like I do. And, you know, he's just uh, an old codger that don't know nothing about nothing and, you know, all that stuff. I get it. And I, I, I will readily admit it. I do it all the time. I am nothing but a converted street urchin. Honestly, I, I, would, I would estimate that my IQ is half of John Piper's, John MacArthur's, uh, R.C. Sproul's, uh, maybe a fourth of D.A. Carson. But listen, despite all of that, I do have something that they don't have. I have a final authority that determines my theology, not a theology that determines my final authority. And because I have a final authority, you know, I I, I feel like it's kind of like what David was expressing in Psalm 119, verses 89 and 98 and 99. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers. But the truth is, y'all, I really don't care about theological degrees, intelligent quotients, and whatever else. Again, I don't think that God put a premium on ignorance, but I also don't think that he put a premium on intelligence, which is obviously very convenient for me to believe. <laughs> but, but listen, real, realize this, that, that, that some of the names that I just mentioned are people who are known for their stand on the Bible. And, and they uphold it as their final authority. In, in fact, most Calvinists, they, 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 they talk about this all the time, this thing, of, do you know sola scriptura? Do, do you know this? They're the ones that popularize this. And, and what it basically is saying is that the scriptures are our sole authority. And, and listen, y'all, I know that they say that they believe that. And I know that they think that they think that. But my contention is that Reformed theology has superseded their final authority and their belief in Reformed theology has dictated what they believe about the Bible. I believe... I wish I had something really cool up here to do this with. All I got is a sheet of paper. But I believe that you've got to take Reformed theology and put it over the Bible, and it becomes a filter that you see through. It becomes a, a lens that you read the Bible through. Because I am absolutely convinced that if you took somebody who was a, a new believer and you put them on a deserted island for a year with nothing but the Spirit of God in their souls and the Word of God in their hands 
and they have never been indoctrinated by Reformed theology. I don't believe there is a snowball's chance in Hades that they're going to come off of that island believing in the five tenets of Calvinism that formed the acrostic, and I think that you showed this this morning, the, the tulip acrostic. I, these, are the, these are the five basic tenets that Pastor Jeff and Pastor Brett will be talking about in the morning sessions. These are the ones that Calvinists hold to. John Piper, who up until recently was the, the lead pastor of the Bethlehem Baptist Church of Minneapolis, who for some reason has the ear of a lot of 20 and 30-somethings. There's a lot of 20 and 30-somethings in this church. I love that. It's awesome. And he, he's got the ear. Piper says that he's a seven-point Calvinist. Tatulip, or I don't know what his little acrostic is. R.C. Sproul, who has been deemed by many the greatest theologian of our time, says that he's a five-point Calvinist. John MacArthur, who has been deemed the greatest Bible teacher of our time, also says that he's a five-point Calvinist. And you know what? There's a lot of fundamental Bible-believing, King James toting folks that would tell you that they're a two-point Calvinist or maybe a three-point Calvinist. And maybe even some of y'all here tonight that are two- or three-point Calvinists. I'd like to go on record tonight and just say unequivocally, that word, uh, see, unequivocally, Thank you. I would like to say most assuredly, I'm a no-point Calvinist. I don't believe in a single one of them. And again, my, my contention is if you took a new believer and, and you put him on a desert island, again, with, with a Bible in his hand, the Spirit of God living inside of, inside of him, I, I really, for the life of me, y'all, I do not think he would come off believing any one of those. You, you know what has to happen to you in order to believe any one of those five things? You have to come under the influence of a Calvinist. And their influence and their theological system has begun to override your belief in the Bible as your final authority. You'd have to have the filter of Reformed theology laid over the Bible in order to read it the way that they do. And and, and let me just talk about what we saw in that, that first point about whose choice our salvation actually is and whether every man has that choice or not. I, uh, I, again, I mean, if we've got this guy on the island and we said, hey, this is all you got for the next year, you know what he's going to come off of that island believing? You know what he's going to come off of that island rejoicing about 
He's going to come off of that island rejoicing about 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, that our God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. They'll come off rejoicing about 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, that our God will have all men to be saved. They'll come off rejoicing about Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to, say it, all men. They're going to come off rejoicing about John 1 and verse 9, that Jesus was and is the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. They'll come off of that island rejoicing about 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. They'll come off rejoicing about Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, that who Christ is and what he did is good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. They'll come off rejoicing about 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10 that Jesus is the living God who is the Savior of all men. They'll come off rejoicing about Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 that our Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God tasted death for every man. They'll come off rejoicing about Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28, that we preach Jesus warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. They'll come off rejoicing about 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6, that our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a ransom for all. They'll come off rejoicing about 1 John 4 and verse 14 that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. They'll come off rejoicing about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Hallelujah. Listen, that's what any, all, and every person is going to come off of that deserted island rejoicing about. I guarantee you there wouldn't be one, and I mean not one, who would come off of that island believing what a Calvinist is forced to believe about every one of those ultra-simple, ultra-clear verses that we just read together. Because you know what Reformed theology says about every one of those verses, y'all? It's the craziest thing in the world to me. That when God talks about the world, or even the whole world, that doesn't mean the whole world. It means the whole world of people God elected. And, and if you think I'm making up an approach to the very word and words of God that is as unthinkable and as absurd as that, listen to 
what one of the key gurus has to say, R.C. Sproul, what he has to say about John 3.16. The world for whom Christ died cannot mean the entire human family. Oh, It must, it must refer to the universality of the elect people from every tribe and nation. How would you ever possibly say something like that if this is your final authority? John Owen writes, that the world here cannot signify all that ever were or should be is as manifest as if it were written with the beams of the sun. I'm telling you, it is the craziest thing in the world to me because I would passionately and vehemently say that the world in these verses signifies all that ever were and would ever be, and that's as absolutely clear as if it were written with the beams of the sun. <laughs> Edwin Palmer writes, since the objects of the Father's love are particular, definite, and limited, so are the objects of Christ's death. And he goes on to say, because God has loved certain ones and not all, because he has sovereignly and immutably determined that these particular ones will be saved, he sent his son to die for them, to save them and not all the world. And listen, y'all, that's what they have to do with every single verse that we just rattled off there. The, the Reformed position is the whole world doesn't mean the whole world, but the whole world of elect people. And whosoever doesn't mean whosoever, but whosoever God chose. And, and all doesn't mean all. It means all of the elect. And all people and all men and every man doesn't mean all people and all men and every man, but all people and all men and every man that God chose to salvation before the foundation of the world. That's what they've got to say. And you will never, ever, ever convince me that anybody in their right biblical mind could ever come to that conclusion without somebody imposing a theological system over the final authority of this book. And I got to tell you, man, I would worry about what I've let some man or some theological system do to me when simple words like world don't mean world. Whosoever doesn't mean whosoever. All doesn't mean all. Every doesn't mean every. Because li li here's the deal, y'all. If I can't trust my simple little understanding of words I didn't even know needed to be defined and interpreted, 
or in this case redefined and reinterpreted, then I, I, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to submit to your authority and, and to the authority of your theological system to tell me everything else that I believe because I just thought all meant all. So if that doesn't mean that, then okay, I, I give up on all the other stuff. I'm, I'm telling you folks, regardless of what someone wants to claim about what they believe in the Scriptures, uh, about the Scriptures being their sole and final authority, there is not a Calvinist on this planet that hasn't had Reformed theology replace and or supersede the final authority of the Bible. And, and let's go back to our guy on the desert island. I'm kind of liking this guy. Okay, so let, let's say that this guy is, is you. Okay? New believer. Not been indoctrinated by anything. Just got your Bible in the Spirit, man. Okay, I, I, I got to tell you, you're probably going to come off of that island and there may be a few verses that you want to talk to your pastor about. Or, or you, you may, after that year, you, you may want to spend a, an, another year keeping those verses in their context and dutifully comparing Scripture with Scripture and, and letting the Bible give you your definitions. So I, I get it. There's a couple of verses that we might need to, to work through a little bit. And, and now listen, those are the verses that we're going to be talking about in the evening sessions this week. Verses like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where it talks about the fact that God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Or, or verses like in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where he talks about the fact that He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Or, or verses like Acts chapter 13, verse 48, where it talks about, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. Or verses like Malachi chapter 1, in verse 2, in the beginning of verse 3, where the Lord says, I love Jacob, and I, I hated Esau. Okay, I, I get it. We may have some questions about some of those verses, but uh, again, I can assure you that without a Calvinist imposing a system of Reformed theology on you or indoctrinating you with, again, what is a Roman Catholic approach and view of Scripture, you, you'd never be caught dead in a million years holding a pedal of the tulip acrostic in your hand. And, and just for the record, for those of you that have come from out of town, and man, we're thrilled that you, you guys have come as well. Um, some of you may have come expecting and anticipating an explanation and exposition of Romans chapter 9. Pastor Jeff has already thoroughly and beautifully undone the Calvinist impositions uh, upon that text in this church, just going through the book of Romans uh, several months ago, if I'm recalling. And, and 
I'm sure that that CD will get included in, in these conferences. And if not, if that's not what they've planned, then you can go to the church website and you can write this down and you can go and listen to Pastor Jeff as he talks about Romans chapter 9. Okay, so some of you are probably thinking, that, well, wait a minute now. How could you possibly say that you don't even agree with one of the points of Calvinism? And that leads to the, the third reason for why I'm not a Calvinist. I, I, I'm not a Calvinist because I, I've learned what they actually mean by the terms they use. I, I, I've learned what they actually mean by the terms they use. And I, I'm talking about the terms that form the, the acrostic Tulip. And, and just to be honest with you, I, I, I know that this is going to sound harsh and o- overstated. Listen now, but if, if you can find out how Reformed theology actually defines the terms they use that comprise their, their system of theology before you get brainwashed by their system so that you can't see out of it, I, I, I believe that when you really find out what they're saying about what they believe, I, I think that you'll find that it is nothing short of false doctrine and really just a reworked and repackaged form of Roman Catholicism. And, and to be honest with you, I, I haven't always been willing been willing to say that because you know what the reality is man I I have Calvinist friends that I love and would do anything in the world for and I believe they're as saved as I am I I, I believe they love God every bit as much as I do or more I, I believe that they would be hurt they will be hurt when they hear this they may even be angered but, but the reality is, I believe that what they really believe, not the palatable, cleaned-up version that we think they believe, but when we really find out what they believe, I believe it does violence to the Bible and actually misrepresents the God of the Bible. Because, listen, when, when you really understand what they mean by the words they use in Calvinism, the, the simple fact is... Their definitions of terms is not the same as our definitions. Their explanation of biblical doctrines is not the same explanation that we would give. How we expound passages is not how they expound passages. And and, and listen, there's no doubt some of you that are here tonight that, you know, think at this point, and it's all, all good, but you, you think that you agree with several of the points of Calvinism, and I, I, I'm of the opinion that the reason that you think that you agree is because you think you understand what they meant, but I don't think you really understand what they mean. And, and I'll give you just one example tonight, and, and we'll quit, okay? 
Let, let, let's talk for just a second about the term depraved or, or depravity. Okay, that's a term that we use. It's a biblical concept or a biblical doctrine that we believe about man's utter sinfulness. Okay, obviously, that's a term that they use. It's a doctrine that they espouse about man's utter sinfulness. But again, listen, what their definition of that is and how they explain, quote-unquote, total depravity. And and let me just say this, that my, my purpose tonight is not to undo the tulip. Again, that's why we're inviting you to come in the mornings. That's when that's really going to be talked about. I, I, I just want to, to give you an idea of how they apply definitions to terms that I don't think most people are actually aware of that change everything. And thus my statement that I'm a no-point Calvinist. Okay, so let's think about this together. Okay, because w- when it comes to the depravity of man, okay, let's, let's try to get there. Wh- which one of us in this room would, w- would believe anything other than the fact that sinful man before a supremely holy God is anything other than Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 say that he is? That all, that there isn't in all of mankind even one single righteous person in the whole lot of us. Don't we all believe that tonight? Paul says it very matter of a fact, matter of factly. There is none righteous. And anticipating that we might want to call out some exception, uh, you know, my grandmother, Paul cuts us off at the pass, and he says, no. Not one. He knows we're going to do that. He knows our grandmother. <laughs> and, and, and verse 11, which one of us doesn't believe that we're so unrighteous that we can't even comprehend how unrighteous we are? Which one of us doesn't believe that we're all just spiritually clueless? We're so unrighteous, as the rest of verse 11 goes on to say, that in our sinfulness and depravity, we weren't seeking God. We may have been seeking the things of God. We weren't seeking God. And verse 12 says that we've all gone out of the way. Because Isaiah 53 and verse 6 says that we all chose our own way. A way that is against God. And the ramifications of that isn't that we were just unprofitable. What the verse says is that we were altogether unprofitable. I mean, it runs deep, man. So deep that all of us in our lost condition, he says, is incapable of doing good. And once again... Paul anticipating that we might be thinking of some exception. You know, I, I knew one good guy one time. No, not one. Which one of us in this room doesn't believe Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12? We all believe that. That's, that's depravity. And which one of us doesn't believe Ephesians chapter 2 and, and verse 12? 
That, that in our depraved, sinful condition as Gentiles, that we were totally without Christ. And, and that we were aliens or, or total outsiders from the commonwealth of Israel. That we were strangers from the covenants of promise, which left us completely with how much hope? No hope. And totally without God, leaving us completely helpless. And again, I say to you, man, which one of us doesn't believe that in our depraved, lost condition, that that's exactly what every single one of us was? The best of us and the worst of us. We all believe that. That's why the gospel was such good news for everyone in this room that was saved. It was good news because the gospel finally shined past the blinders that 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 says that Satan was using to keep us bound in our sin. And for the first time in our life, we really understood the incredibly bad news about our condition before a holy God that we were righteous less, we were clueless, we were seeking less, we were Christless, we were covenantless, we were promiseless, we were hopeless, we were godless, and we were all helpless sinners. You believe that? But buddy... When the gospel was proclaimed, we believe something happened, don't we? Which one of us in this room tonight doesn't believe Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 that the message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the very power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes? Do you believe that tonight? That there's power in that message? That message had me so jacked up as a teenager, I was literally shaking because the message was the power of God to salvation. I mean, we believe 1 Corinthians 1.18 that by the preaching of the cross, the power of God went to work. And in 2 Corinthians 4.4, we just looked at it. The message of the gospel, the preaching of the cross became a light. The light of the very image of Christ and that light of the gospel shined past the blinders Satan was using to keep us bound in our sin. And when our eyes opened to the gospel... And we exercised our will as Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 talks about by calling upon His name in belief. Which one of us in this room doesn't believe that at the very moment we called on His name that we were regenerated, that we were born again? Which one of us in this room doesn't firmly and thoroughly believe, as Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 says, that the Father made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light and delivered us 
from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And again I ask you, which one of us in this room doesn't believe that that was the power of the gospel and that what I just described is not what the God of the Bible laid out in this book as his plan of salvation. Anybody doesn't believe that? Here's the kicker, y'all. Calvinists don't believe that. You say, come on, man. Man, I was, I was wanting to give these CDs to some of my Calvinist friends, but man, Pastor Mark, you can't be misrepresenting their position like that. Because, come on, Pastor Mark, you, you know that there's nothing more basic and fundamental to New Testament Christianity than what you just described from those verses about salvation. And you can't tell me that they don't believe that. You've got to be misrepresenting their position. You've got to be exaggerating their beliefs. And I'm not. Listen, when they use the term total depravity, they don't mean everything that we just talked about, that we're all helplessly and hopelessly sinful. By total depravity, they mean total incapability listen now what what they mean is listen that even the message of the gospel isn't the power of god unto salvation that we're so depraved you can't respond to the gospel and that the only way that you can believe the gospel or receive the gospel is, listen to this, to first be regenerated by God. L listen carefully. That God has to regenerate you or quicken you, bring you to spiritual life. In other words, God has to cause you to be born again before you can believe the gospel. And you say, uh, wait a minute, Pastor Mark. I think you've got to be mistaken because if they believed that, that would mean that you had to be regenerated before you could believe rather than you believe, and the result of that belief in the gospel of Christ is that you're regenerated. And you say, I mean, hey, if Calvinists actually believe that, then they would mean that God had to save you before you could be, before you could be saved. You say, well, that's, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I'm saying... You say, well, I, I know they can't believe that. That doesn't even make biblical sense. And, and, and the, Calvinists, the Calvinists that I know are, are way too intelligent and biblically literate to believe something as whacked as that. I, I mean, Pastor Mark, that would be a different gospel than what Paul preached. 
and would violate every key teaching of Scripture about the power of the gospel and God's plan of salvation. They can't possibly believe that. Okay, let let me allow them to speak for themselves. Again, Gene Krockenfels has this to say about it. Man is totally depraved, meaning man is unable to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel. Frank Beck says, he, speaking of man, is free to turn to Christ, but not able. That makes sense if you don't think about it. You know what it does? It, it takes a, 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 a statement like that, takes God's simple plan of salvation, and it turns it into the Hotel California. <laughs> you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. I, I ask you, y'all, what could that possibly mean that a sinner is free to turn to Christ but not able? Edwin Palmer, in his book, The Five Points of Calvinism, writes, once he, referring to the sinner, is born again, he can for the first time turn to Jesus, expressing sorrow for his sins and asking Jesus to save him. You say, I I don't think that most Calvinists believe that. Okay, well, let's let's let R.C. Sproul clarify it for us. A cardinal point of Reformed theology is the maxim. Regeneration precedes faith. (laughs) You say, well, you know, they must work off of a different definition of regeneration. Because my, my definition, common people, is that regeneration is, it means born again. That's exactly what they mean too. Sproul says, the Reformed view of predestination teaches that before a person can choose Christ, he must be born again. One does not believe, then become reborn. (laughs) Lorraine Boatner, the so-called great American theologian, writes, if any person believes, it is because God has quickened him. And if any person fails to believe, it's because God has withheld that grace which he was under no obligation to bestow. John Piper echoes the same sentiment of of God having to regenerate us so that we can believe. He he writes, There can be no salvation without the reality of irresistible grace. If we are dead in our sins, totally unable to submit to God, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion. Piper goes on. God is sovereign and can conquer all resistance when He wills. Irresistible grace refers to the sovereign work of God to overcome the rebellion of our hearts and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can be saved. And it gets worse. Krockenfeld says the sovereign regeneration, listen to this, may take place at birth, 
at baptism, infant baptism, or some other time. The New Geneva Study Bible, which was edited by R.C. Sproul and J.I. Packer, says, Infants can be born again, although the faith they exercise cannot be as visible as that of adults. (laughs) I see where they're going with this. (laughs) Not. John Calvin himself wrote, God in baptism promises the remission of sins and will undoubtedly perform what he has promised to all believers. That promise was offered to us in baptism. Let us therefore embrace it in faith. I say to unite. I'm not a Calvinist because I now know what they mean by the terms they use. And they mean something totally different than what that book says. Let's just hang with that as our final authority. Pastor Jeff.